Hello, and welcome to Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you're here with us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing the Easter Vigil. Our amazing guests this week are the Reverend Lydia Simmons from Leeds, South Dakota, who is the Missioner for Camp and Young Adult Ministries for the Diocese of South Dakota and is the Rector of Christ Church Episcopal in Leeds. Her labradoodle puppy Luna loves to contribute to all aspects of her ministry, including in the background of most conversations and the energetic Nick Gordon, who is the United Thank Offerings Julia Chester Emery intern, working with the Reconciliation Justice and Creation Care team. He is a college student attending New York University and is a vestry and altar guild member at St. John's in the Village, New York City. He is also a current member of the Diocese of New York Committee to elect a new bishop and the Anti-Racism Committee. Welcome, my friends. Thank you so much for being with us today. What are some, or what is important, do you think, to keep in mind for Easter and Easter Vigil this year specifically? I think the thing that is capturing my attention as I think of the Easter Vigil is just how important we have realized celebrations and gatherings with people have been. And what is almost as equally important as the people we gather with is the spaces we're gathering in And the Easter Vigil is just this great celebration. And I think it's really an opportunity to gather and remember our history and who and where we are. And I think that this year in particular, the celebratory nature of the vigil can be really profoundly impactful after what may feel like a few years now of darkness. Hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with that. The Easter Vigil is probably my favorite service of the year. I'm a huge fan of Lent as a discipline, as a practice, as something that we all gather around. And I think the Easter Vigil is really like the climax of all of that. And I think we've all been in a lot of darkness Mm -hmm. um, over the past couple of years now. While it seems difficult at times to be in the darkness, I have a lot of friends who kind of were like, I can't do Lent this year. On top of all the darkness I'm already encountering in my life, I can't be present in that darkness. I always challenge folks to say, you know, like the darkness is actually something that's really important to who we are in our tradition. We wouldn't have Easter without Good Friday. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the in-between of Holy Saturday and the Easter Vigil is really important to our current moment because we need to remember that Amidst the darkness, there is light that is coming towards us. There is hope, even when it seems like it's most dark, particularly these days. The other thing I find most profound about the vigil is just the moment of sitting, of waiting in the darkness, hearing. I mean, it's a really meditative space to sit into. As someone who is newer to doing liturgy professionally. I was ordained to the diaconate just before Holy Week last year, ordained to the priesthood in October of this year. So heading into Holy Week as a rector for the first time, I feel that my anxiety and nerves are building as it's all the logistical pieces and not my own personal prayer. And yet the vigil really does offer us this beautiful space and time 
to pause and pray mm. and come together in a way yeah. that we really don't have space for oftentimes in our lives or in our church throughout the rest of the year. Absolutely. I think, <laughs> I think it's always funny at, as an altar guild member, you know, the, does that person have the right reading? Is there enough light for them to read? You know, like, do they, do they know what to say? You know, do they know what they're doing? All that kind of like anxiety, I think is something I definitely struggle with wanting to be present in this really holy moment that we don't get often, but also needing to work through all the logistics of this huge service. So I think it's a, it's a dual thing that's both a blessing, but also something that we need to kind of counteract in some ways. Mm -hmm. And also the intimacy of the kind of fumbling, the intimacy of the not needing to be perfect, that if you need to take an extra moment to adjust the light or to find the reading or to move through the darkness, there's a real profound intimacy that comes in being vulnerable in the dark in that way with your siblings who surround you in a way that I found doesn't always happen in perfectly manicured liturgies. Yes. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the like Lakota beating concept of, you know, you always make one mistake when you're beating and liturgy should be the same way, right? Mm -hmm. Only the creator is perfect. What liturgical suggestions do you have for this service? I absolutely love experiencing things different liturgically. So my parish I grew up in did a Saturday night vigil. The parish I did served at in seminary did a Sunday morning vigil, a sunrise vigil, which are two different sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. I really find the profoundness of the darkness to be really, really essential to the way in which we do this prayer and this liturgy. And if you get the opportunity to hear it in a cohesive and coherent way that you don't get other points in the year, it's not a time to cut corners, to rush through things. It's really to sit and hold that kind of liminal space that is so profound in that liturgy. Hmm. This year of all years, I mean, is the year to not cut corners, to live into being in community with one another. I think it's so essential that we take that time of just sitting with one another in the darkness. Like I almost think about back in the olden days, if you didn't have electricity, when the sun goes down, like the day is over, you know, you can't do work unlike now. And living into that by just like sitting by some fire of any kind, whatever that looks like, I think is really like special and magical of like, being in darkness, but also being with light at the same time and experiencing what that really is like. The more time that I have spent doing liturgy and especially doing liturgy as an ordained minister, what has been most profound for me is, especially with services like the Easter Vigil, is including the laity in as many pieces as possible. The readings, the musical offerings, the canticle responses, Even pieces like the Exalta, if you only have one minister at your church, assisting in the lighting of the first fire, all of those things can and really should be done by lay people. It's not just the story of those who were ordained, but rather it's our whole story as baptized Christians. And in the historic church, they would have been preparing for baptism during the vigil, during Lent, and this would have been the buildup point point. 
So leaning into our call for baptismal ministry and our baptismal vows is so much more important, I think, than having ordained ministers do it as perfectly as we possibly can. But to have the humanity of all of us, ordained or lay, be central to these stories because they are about our humanity. Hmm. Yeah, I think this service is an opportunity to really welcome everyone that is in the life of the parish. You know, I think of my parish is very diverse in that we have folks who worship with us, but then we have folks who use our space for other reasons. And we have all kinds of folks that come in and out of our doors, even if they're not necessarily using our sanctuary as a place of worship. I almost imagine like, is this a good opportunity to invite someone to say, hey, this is a really cool service. We want to invite you to be a part of our community for this opportunity. You know, that this is a good time to embody that radical welcome. I was thinking about growing up in our culture, we often, we encourage children, youth, and young adults or folks who are inexperienced to do certain things. And this might be a great opportunity for them to try. And that's more important. It's more important that they learn to do it than it be done well. And so maybe the thurible isn't going to be swung, you know, in these perfect figure eights, or maybe, you know, whoever the crucifer is, is going to stumble around as they walk up or, you know, whatever, there, there might be some different things. Maybe somebody who's in the procession is also carrying their teddy bear. That's okay, right? The other thing I kind of thought about is that like darkness into light and how we think about it. Like in South Dakota, we had our convention. It was like out of the tomb and the camera board is like out of the tomb and into the light or something like that was our theme. And this really made me think about that and just how that transformation happens, the way we use the light, but also just how we do that in the storytelling. In the wintertime, I know as Lakota people, it's very time we tell stories and um, there's certain stories we tell at certain times. And I think as a Christian church, Easter Vigil is that time we tell a lot of those stories of our faith and how we come about. And there's so many stories, and so we probably can't talk about all of them, but I'm, I really want to hear, like, what is your favorite story that gets told in the Easter Vigil, and, and maybe why? Mine has got to be the Valley of the Dry Bones of Ezekiel. I just thought that was the weirdest and coolest thing ever, you know, as a kid listening to those stories. I think it's so profound, so relevant. I guess it hits me really well. It's it's a continuation of that story that, you know, God can find a way out of no way. And there's also like a mystical sense to it. There's a it almost makes me think of like sci-fi movies, you know, that are set on like a desert planet. And somehow, you know, these bones come together and form, you know, the sinews and the ligaments that then come into a full flesh. You know, like there's there's just something real powerful about that. And I think particularly now, um, as I think about it, I think a lot of folks are feeling very dried out <laughs> or they're feeling that there are many things that like may be those dry bones that will never come to pass. We look towards our social justice movements of today. There are folks who are tired and who really feel the people that came out at one point in time aren't coming out as much as they used to. This story, for me, at least speaks to that in a big way because it's bringing together that body. And we can almost look at it, you know, through our conception of the body of Christ. We need to be brought together in this time where things seem so dry and desolate. I would agree. I think that that one is one of the most profound ones. The one that always sticks out to me, though, is the wisdom readings. So either if you do the Baruch one or the Proverbs one, both of those readings talking about wisdom and the wisdom that we share and just the idea of a fountain of wisdom and how we are opening ourselves to this church year of telling 
our story and specifically the time between Easter and Pentecost is so much our story as a Christian people. The reading that sticks out for me the most is the Proverbs reading or the Baruch reading, the wisdom reading, really hearing about our wisdom and the church year and the space in which we are forming ourselves to receive the wisdom of our ancestors, receive the wisdom of our story of the church, and all of those pieces that really lead into how we are shaped and formed as people in the church. And I especially think of it in terms of the Tioshpe Wakan congregation that was local to my congregation growing up. It was primarily Lakota urban indigenous worshipers and all of the wisdom stories and feminine language for wisdom is just so profound for me comparing it to the Lakota women that I've heard telling stories uh, Mm. since I was little. Mm. That's beautiful. And your dog loves telling stories too, apparently. (laughs) Yes. I really like the Zephaniah. I think it just talks about like the rejoicing that we have when we have justice or when we have equity and the different things that happen and how God is calling us to have that justice, that equity, that right relationship, I think. And uh, this, I will save the lame, gather the outcast, change their shame into praise. And I think so for so many of our communities, especially those that are oppressed, we don't just have guilt. I think so much of it is like the shame. Like we, we feel like something's wrong with us because society has been telling us that when there isn't anything wrong with us. And this kind of helps just to remind us of that. Let's talk about the Exodus because that's like the one story I think that's like you're required to read. The story of the parting the Red Sea. And I always think of like, you know, the Ten Commandments movie and whatever. Um, but what stands out for you in that story? I love this story. This story reminds me of The Prince of Egypt. All of that animation, that was a movie that came out when I was younger and was really popular when I was growing up in the church. That is one that really sticks out to me. The phrase that always sticks out to me out of the Exodus reading is, why do you cry out to me? Is what the Lord asks Moses. And then God says, why do you cry out to me? And then gives the solution, you know, and... Oftentimes in my life at the vigil, I have spent a lot of time reflecting in Lent. And by the time we hit the vigil in Holy Week, I am burnt out and exhausted. And, you know, why do you cry out to me? And then at the end of it, there is this joy and celebration. And the kind of arc of our liturgy is really reflected also in the arc of this reading. And so I just Mm. find that really profound. Yeah, I agree. I think the joy of being delivered from something like this, I think is so profound. And again, speaks to this whole concept of living into the joy of coming out of a difficult time or taking those moments when we see a community that looks like the justice that we want to see in the world or looks like the equity that we want to see in the world. I think that there's something about living into that joy because often I've found I tend toward the negative. I need someone like Miriam or somebody else to call me out and say, you know, look at already what God has done for us and let us rejoice in that. I love the part about Miriam singing and dancing at the end. And I think it's kind of a reminder, like here you've just had this horrible experience, right? And you've just been saved. And it's like, 
sometimes people are like in shock and that fight, flight, or freeze still maybe, but we also have to remember that there has to be time of rejoicing. And even now, you know, we're in COVID, but we still have Easter. So we still need to think about like, how can we rejoice? I think it's also profound just the singing and the use of voice in these texts that you see in some pieces. I was at a funeral on the Pine Ridge Reservation for a priest earlier this week. And one of the things was at the graveside near the end, when the Christian liturgy had wrapped up, a number of the traditional Lakota singers started singing. And the way Mm -hmm. in which all the people came together and were singing and contributing that wholehearted, authentic expression of grief is also a part of, I think in this, the wholehearted singing of the Israelites and their joy and celebration. Our Christian liturgy is often, in this very westernized way, is often in boxes Mm -hmm. and doesn't have a lot of space for authentic kind of spontaneous expression it has to be the selected hymn it has to be these pieces and I'm certain that Miriam and her family and her friends did not pre-plan the liturgical music that was being sung as they had crossed the Red Sea I am certain that the keys maybe changed as they sang or mm-hmm. weren't exactly rhythmic and weren't uniform in their rhythm. I think this kind of just spontaneous, authentic musical expression is something that a lot of cultures do a lot better than Western Anglo Christian cultures do. I think the control of emotions is such a part of that Western Anglo, right? Like, I mean, it comes from England and you see they're very like controlled. And emotion is something to be controlled. Whereas I think in a lot of our communities of color, emotion is something to be expressed, right? And I definitely see that at the Lakota funerals that I've been to too. There's wailing and that usually as the casket's getting lower, there's a specific song they sing and the words are something like, I think they said like, here you are, my friend. The word is stronger than friend, but that's the best translation. Here you are, my friend. Wherever you go, you will always be my friend. Remember me. And, and like, as soon as they start singing that, everybody just starts bawling. And then the, you know, the ladies are singing the wachaglacha, which is like the, I don't know, it's like kind of like a descant or something that they're singing as the other parties are singing. But yeah. What metaphorical sea needs to be parted in our world right now? Or what maybe as we as a society do we need to cross in order to be free? I mean, where to begin? <laughs> I think this is a part of that, like seeing all that needs to be parted before us, the dry land that we need to be able to step on to kind of cross through this difficult time. When you look at the Episcopal Church specifically, I think that there's a lot of work that we all have to do to really live into being what we say we are. And I think we're really at an impasse of that right now, where there's a lot of work that people have done in this realm of wanting to be more welcoming, be more liberating, be more open to what the world is calling us and what God is calling us into. But Mm. I think that we also often fall short to know that God is on our side and wanting to work with us to help part this large expanse of sea that sits before us is something that we have to continue to have hope in. It really is, it's something we have to both acknowledge and see within our church and within ourselves the systemic oppression that both we as a church 
have participated in and then the wider systems that we as Christians in the world participate in. We need to kind Mm -hmm. of repent for that. And again, this is a part of living into the darkness of the Good Friday, of seeing that and repenting it and acknowledging it, but then also knowing that resurrection is coming. A new birth for us as a church is really coming. That sense of revival, I think, really speaks heavily in this parting of sea metaphor that we're looking at. My first inclination in parting the Red Sea is that it's kind of paradoxical to what I see in my ministry as what needs to be happening is instead of dividing, uniting. Mm -hmm. But in what you were saying, Nick, I really think that the thing that stuck out to me was that maybe the Red Sea could be like parting the curtains, removing Mm. the blinders, removing the veil, you know, uncovering where we need to be going and how we need to be getting there. And the thing, though, with the sea is that the Egyptians ended up stuck. They were left behind, and they ultimately were unable to adapt and accept the liberation, and therefore were physically left behind. And so what things in our lives, as we're crossing over from what was to what is to be, Mm -hmm. as we're in this Red Sea time right now, what are we intentionally and what are we unintentionally leaving stuck in the mud? What are we leaving behind that is going to allow us to go into what is to be? And the more reading that I've been doing with the larger church is that where we are wanting to be is this liberated people who are aware of the experience of the other. We are aware Mm. of our siblings. We are aware of whose voices are being heard and whose Mm. voices aren't being heard. And maybe leaving some of ourselves stuck in the mud, stuck behind to be closed and washed clean. I mean, the waters of baptism washed clean at the end of the Easter Vigil liturgy and that washing away, what are we wanting to have washed away? And I think this inability to acknowledge systemic racism, because I don't think systemic racism is going to get stuck in the mud and washed away for a long time. I would love it to be. But I think the thing is, reality that I've been experiencing ministering in a very, very small, very rural town in the mountains of South Dakota is that having people even acknowledge that there is such a thing as systemic racism is a huge thing to leave in the mud, the Mm -hmm. inability to acknowledge it. And so how are we going from where we were to where we are to be and becoming a new people in the process? And how can we celebrate with joy on the banks of opposite side? Hmm. Amen. Amen. For whatever reason, what comes to mind for me is the Merton prayer for discernment, right? Which begins, you know, Lord, I do not know where I am going. Asking God to really reveal the pathway, the dry land before us. There's just a lot of power in that. I really do. And I think because we, in the midst of so much divide, you know, I think for so many folks did a lot of anti-racism work and did a lot of thinking and praying and, you know, action against the evils of racism. Some folks can kind of say, you know, 
oh, well, I've moved on from that. I personally have done a lot of work. I think we've moved on. And the reality is, you know, we, we might not see the totality of our society and our community. That divide is something that is really difficult. I'm also messing around with this C metaphor in my head because I think that there's so much there about both the power of the dry land that divides the water, but also the power of the united force that is needing to cross this water together, cross this great expanse together. I was thinking, Lydia, as you were talking, and Nick, you too, and it just made me think of this thought that I remember somebody using water as kind of how we talk about culture. You know, if you ask a fish, what is water? The fish is like, I don't know, it's this stuff and I swim around in it. But if you remove the fish from the water, then it's like, oh, I need it to breathe and it helps me stay buoyant and it keeps my scales wet and it's so important. And culture is kind of like that too. We're not always aware of it because it's just like the water we swim in. And I'm thinking about that water as, you know, the culture that we're in, like culture in the broadest sense, you know, it's full of like racism and sexism and homophobia and blah, blah, blah. And the culture of our church has those pieces in it too, because, you know, that water we need to cross is full of like, you know, empire and power and greed. We've been so attached to that. What I was thinking about is as the waters parted, the Israelites were the ones being oppressed. So they didn't swim in that same water that the Egyptians did. And so, you know, here we have the Israelites crossing through that water on dry land and then the systemic oppression crushes the Egyptians in that way. I was, I was mm. just kind of like taking your metaphor, Lydia, and just adding that thought. Like in my mind, I was seeing all this stuff like, oh my gosh, that's beautiful. I get too excited sometimes, but <laughs> yeah. I think that something that Nick said touches on it perfectly. They didn't cross the water alone. None of mm -hmm. them walked alone. I have this like great Prince of Egypt image in my mind of them helping each other over rocks and through dry land, but no one had to walk alone. And so you think of it, there were probably strong 20-something men and women who were able to easily walk through. And then there were other people who maybe had more that they were carrying, had physical infirmities, were older, things like that. They all had to help each other walk through. As someone who has attempted to hear lots of stories and acquire and experience knowledge of other people and cultures, I can find myself getting frustrated when other people haven't been able to hear or haven't wanted to hear other stories and aren't able to cross that distance as easily. And how we are called, especially those of us that have spent more time we are specifically called to walk with our neighbors together, not ahead or behind, but together to help them across that. Because our church is just that, you know, we're one body with many members. We have to do this together. We mm -hmm. can't just say, well, those congregations aren't doing the work and these congregations are, or these seminaries are doing the work and these seminaries aren't, or these individuals are doing the work and these individuals aren't. We are called to walk through this together. And sometimes that may mean we are not walking as fast as we could be. We are not getting across the path as fast as we could be, but we are also ensuring that we as a whole are crossing and are not being swept away. We as a whole people are able to cross that boundary. Hmm. I think that kind of goes back to like, what is the point? Is the goal to 
get across as fast as possible or is the goal to ensure that everybody gets across, right? And I think that's true for all of us, right? Sometimes our church is like, we're so, we need to end racism right now. And so then they're doing all these things without thinking about, like without consulting the people who are affected by the decisions that they're making or maybe without including folks of color in the decisions. They're like, oh yeah, we're going to end racism doing this thing. I'm like, well, maybe you need to include the whole community as you're making these decisions, right? I think of people in their 90s that I work with. My context is predominantly experiencing both Anglo and Lakota people, and people in their 90s in both cultures have experienced so much. I mean, in both cultures and societies and in the way in which Lakota people have had this drastic change in how they are incorporated into society and in the church and things like that, and how culture and language has gone from having no power and being illegal to having power and voice and something Mm. that people want to hear. And how are we transitioning everybody to thinking about things in a different way when so much has changed? And Mm. I have a predominantly older congregation and a lot of our work is doing things like having conversations about including the Lakota doxology in our worship. Um, which we do now every Sunday, and they're wanting to learn more about language and culture. And that is doing more in my congregation to end division than big anti-racist marches or anything like that, because that's just not how they can hold that. Hmm. I think a big part of it is meeting people where they're at as well in order to help them move forward. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. For me and a lot of my peers, folks went out, you know, the summer after George Floyd was murdered by the police. They marched, they wrung their hands, they were in the streets, they did something that we haven't seen in quite a while. And then they all went home. And not much has changed. Hmm. My peers are really upset by that. And we're all sitting here and saying, you know, we're still seeing videos of, you know, police officers doing horrible things to people of color every day in this country. Um, and it, I think it's, it's, a real, it's a real frustration that I think we, we need to live into and not just say, you know, not just, you know, harness the energy of the immediate rage that comes from, you know, seeing such horrible things happen. And, you know, we can even see this beyond, you know, individual instances, but on the systemic level, and we really need to harness that and put it towards doing something that's long lasting. And again, not just not just the like, you know, you're wrong and this is wrong and we need to end this now, but also saying, also having those really hard conversations with maybe that parishioner that doesn't agree with you. You know, maybe, maybe that, you know, uh, maybe your grandmother you have a problem with, or maybe your uncle or aunt or whoever it may be. And you need to say, you know, this is beyond just, you know, us, me wringing my hands at you, but let's have a real deep conversation about why you stand where you stand. And what does that, what does that really mean for you? And how can, how can we help see each other just a little bit more? I I really think that's like, for me at least, the core of like what we talk about when we say we're bringing on the coming of the kingdom of God. That's what the kingdom of God looks like, is talking with one another and being in community with one another and not just 
throwing fists at one another, but really being open to one another. I was thinking about the, as you were talking, Nick and Lydia, as you were talking about how important it is to bring everybody along and um, how much grace is involved in that. And I think sometimes we don't always give each other as much grace. And uh, I had a conversation with my mother early on. I put a Black Lives Matter flag up in my um, window. And I remember my mom coming home and she was like, well, where do I get an All Lives Matter flag? And I was like, oh, you know, and I think, um, but because it's my mom, you know, and I love her, I have grace. And I like, again, this is the bringing everybody along. I had to take the time to have that discussion with her about like, well, you know, because um, in technically, yes, all lives matter. But, you know, there are certain lives as a society that we treat badly. And so I had to kind of, you know, walk her through that process. So she understood why that what that flag means and explain like, you know, even though we say black lives matter, we also mean like black and brown lives matter. And let's focus on black lives, because when we bring up everybody, everybody gets, you know, all rising tide raises all boats or however that phrase goes. But I think had somebody said that, that I didn't have as much love for, which that's about me, right? I should be loving everybody, but I might not have taken that time to bring them along. I might've just poo-pooed them as like some, you know, person who doesn't care, but really maybe how many, a lot of people maybe just didn't understand what that phrase meant and the meaning behind it. Yeah. My, uh, the metaphor I love to use is thinking of doing this work as if it's a whole bunch of folks trying to create a circle by holding hands with one another. And the idea being that there are some people that are going to have to reach really far to meet somebody else. Mm. And there are other folks that don't have the capacity to reach very far. They have to stay very close to themselves. And I think that that really helps me a lot to think about like, how much capacity do I have to stretch? And how much capacity do I know people around me have to stretch? Mm. And meeting each other at our capacities, I think is really really important because again, if we're on two totally different sides of the circle, we're not going to be able to reach each other. You know, it's, it's about the collective reaching with one another. Um, and I, that goes right back into this idea of, you know, the body of Christ, right? You know, we, each of us has different capacities, different skills to, you know, be, to be the body of Christ that, you know, works to bring on this coming of the kingdom. So I'm going to switch us over to the gospel, which is probably what most people will preach on, although I think it would be great to preach on some of these other passages, I think, just especially like all the wisdom that you're sharing about this Exodus passage. Just I'm like, oh my gosh, now I want to preach on that for Easter Vigil, or at least tie it in if I, because you kind of maybe have to mention the gospel. But as you read this gospel, what stands out for you in this particular resurrection story? This one repeatedly emphasizes the role of women. This is one of the ones that has the most intense mentioning of women. So right away in the first sentence, it talks about the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee. And then it repeatedly touches base on the women's responses. And then it names the women who tell the apostles. The essential piece in the scriptures, anytime women are named and not just referred to as the women, is really, really important. And the essential role of women's voices in the resurrection narrative is something that was preached on at a sermon when I was very young, and I still remember it on an Mm -hmm. Easter Sunday. It helped me to find confidence in my young female voice 
that ultimately led me to be ordained at 24. And Mm. all of those things, hearing that women were the carriers of the good news in this culture, the women would have had their voices being heard less and with Mm -hmm. less value. And now that we are coming closer to gender equality than they were in this time, how are we then ensuring that we are telling stories of voices that are marginalized, but are carrying the stories of the good news? How are Mm. we re-emphasizing that importance and the importance of hearing those voices and the importance of representation in our texts and in our sermons for all of our siblings um, of all makes and that their voice as it is right now, especially youth and young adults, holds all the power it needs to carry the good news. This text explains that in a way that once you modernize the context, you do the equal pieces, it just is so powerful. So that's what always draws me in this Luke text is the women. Me too. I look at the text after they come and are saying, you know, like, the tomb is empty. The gospel tells us, you know, but these words seem to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. I really think about, like, who do we need to believe? You know, who is preaching, who is prophesying in our society that we really need to believe in these moments, you know, that are preaching good news? I'm totally with you on the youth and young adult track. As a young adult, as a college student, I see that. Folks who want to hear from young adults who want to see youth back in the church. And then sometimes when the youth come back into the church, they're not really listening to them, you know, and they're not really taking their advice. Now, I think any person, any young adult or youth who is active in the church hears this a lot. There's a need to be really intentional about this work of welcoming youth and young adult or anybody who is marginalized or whose voice is not dominant in our church culture today. We need to really listen to them. My favorite example is like going to a lot of churches as a young adult person and they'll be like, oh, well, there's the young adult group over there. You know, like y'all can go and do some great work over there in the young adult group. But Often, the youth or young adult voice needs to be heard on every committee, on the vestry, mm-hmm. on you know mm-hmm. every single committee that this church may have. That voice needs to be there, or else folks are going to move away or pass on to glory, and then what's going to happen? You know, then who's going to be there to be bearers of the witness that a church brings into the community? That whole idea of like not believing when we hear it the first time from somebody that may not be the voice that we're used to hearing, there's a lot of power in that. And it's intentional. I think that's the thing about this Lucan text. It's very intentional that this is here at this point in this text, in this part of the story. And I would say the carrying of good news, the good news of the gospel, which is often hard, it's not Mm -hmm. always good to hear. It's not always the easiest thing to hear. How are we listening to prophetic voices in our communities that are authentically stating their experience by saying, I feel marginalized as a young adult in the church. I feel that my voice as a non-binary person is not being heard in this church. I am feeling that the way you are approaching this 
holds racist connotations. Amen. How are we hearing what the gospel is calling us to? Amen. The good news of the gospel, which is that we are all saved and liberated from sin, but that also means that we have to hear these difficult messages and hear this in a way that can be uncomfortable and painful and disbelieving. And maybe sometimes we need to see it with our own eyes like Peter did in the gospel. But wouldn't it be amazing if the women would have said, this happened? And it was terrible and horrifying. I mean, Jesus was gone. He was risen. And wouldn't it have been amazing if all the apostles would have believed the words they said? But how are we leaning into all of that? I'm always shocked at how much we haven't learned. That's not really what stands out to me in this story. But like, I'm always like, how, it's been how many thousands of years and we still, you know, we still don't believe women when they say things. <laughs> and especially as a church, if you look at all the abuse and all the scandals and all that stuff, it's such a shame. The thing that always stood out for me as a kid and now is the two men in dazzling clothes. And maybe it's just because I imagine them as like having sequins or something. I don't know why that was so important to me as a kid, but I'm always like, yes. <laughs> And so, like, who were those men in the dazzling clothes? Mm. I was like, are those angels? Were they, you know, I was like, was it two persons of God? Like, I, you know, I've always wondered, you know, in one of the stories, I think it is God or kind of makes it seem like it's God. And another one, it's these people. And then I'm like, maybe it was just like their perspective. Like, if someone was just outside the door, they could only see two people when they looked through the doorway. Or maybe if somebody's in the door, they could see all of them. Like, I don't know. Mm. But I've always wondered that question. Yeah. I would want to see two people in sequined gowns uh bringing the good news i think that's what we need but yeah no it's it's an interesting thing to contemplate who are those folks what is you know it says why are you looking for the living among the dead one of the people says that in what ways do we look for living among the dead our church as a whole looks for the message of what we should be doing they're looking for the practices that we should be following the traditions we should be upholding the way that we should be doing things by looking at how it's been done for hundreds of years. I Mm. have frequently in this new project, the Diocese of South Dakota is undergoing that's been entitled the Woe Lakota Project, talking about right relationship. Some of the things that have been suggested in our congregation have been shot down because, well, that doesn't work. That didn't work for us before. And I ask, you know, when was the last time that... This was tried, and I have found that the phrase that I can use that holds the most power is, the last time you tried, that was before I was born. And (laughs) taking that in stride and saying, if this hasn't been tried in my lifetime, why can't we try it now? And we've had Mm. some really beautiful successes and some really great community-building conversations Because we are not worried about how the previous organist who passed away would have done it or thought about the music. How are we picking liturgical actions, not based on people who founded the church, but people whose heart are in the church right now? Hmm. And I think that the church frequently loves to look for the living among the dead. But how Mm -hmm. can we lift up our eyes from the stone, lift up our eyes from the cave, lift up our eyes and our heart to the glory of the resurrection, to where we are called to raise up the church, not pull it back down 
go forward and not back. And I think there's also some selectiveness in that looking back. That's the real issue. If we actually looked at all of our past history and saw it all as for what it is as a church, that would hopefully inform a lot more of how we're operating today. I mean, I think you look at something that I think about often is, you know, we're seeing decline in our church membership, our church attendance. I think that's something that everybody's worried about. And I see it too, you know, like no matter what my life in ministry in the church looks like, what will the church look like by the time I retire or by the time I die? You know, and I think it's going to look really different. And if you look back at the way that early Christians operated, it looks a lot different than how we are today because they were not the ones who were in places of power. And I think we really need to take ourselves off the high and mighty seat, especially, you know, folks like Episcopalians. If we are not as like influential as we used to be, what does that look like for us? What message do we bring if that's the different way that we approach things. So yeah, I think <laughs> I like this idea of like, we love to look back at the past, but it's really only for like, you know, it's always with the rose colored glasses. That can go from the most local level of like, you know, oh, we loved when that organist used to play, but oh, like everyone was angry with him that he did this. We only remember the good things about our past in some way. To live into the bad things, that is what preaches good news to us today. And I think what's so powerful too is that in my experience, people in positions of power and privilege are more comfortable and more willing to look back, to stay back, to look for the current answers among the dead, look for the living among the dead. But that's another place where we can be listening to the prophetic voices of our siblings on the margins, because Mm. for those who are not in positions of power and privilege, those who are still invested in our churches, even after hundreds of years of the church continually oppressing them, they are the ones who are going to carry the church into the next years and generations and millennia is Mm -hmm. listening to those voices, listening to our siblings who are going to help raise our eyes out of listening and looking for living among the dead. Those men in dazzling clothes (laughs) calling us out. How are we listening in ways that is going to allow us to set down our power and privilege and listen and go forth from this place. I was remembering a church, like every time they would do something good, oh, you know, we had all these people who showed up for our community meal or whatever. And they'd be like, well, that's not like how it used to be. We used to have, you know, and we might've had like 200 people. Like, well, I remember when there used to be 400 people who would, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's like this, mm-hmm. this, I always think the living among the dead is like this sense of nostalgia that people have so often, or they just, the other thing I was thinking about is just how so many churches are so afraid of losing something they're so fearful of losing something they won't try anything new and i don't know how that relates mm. i mean it relates to the living mm. among them but i'm not quite sure how to make the connection clearly for everybody but i think someone is like oh we have this endowment well if everybody in the church is gone you know except for like the you know endowed rector or whatever that endowment is not going to benefit anybody and like if you're so busy holding on to it you know sitting on those talents burying them in the ground those talents aren't going to be able to be used to grow right mm. or to grow the church what is something the kind of the opposite end of the the spectrum. What is something you wish was resurrected? I am a community person through and through. I love people. I love gatherings. I love community. I mean, that's a big part of why I love faith communities and church is just being with people. And I hope that the fear of others 
from the pandemic, the fear that you're going to catch something from your neighbor, all of that, while warranted and very essential to keeping people safe and healthy for the last two years, I hope that that is not something that we carry forward. I hope Mm. that this desperate need for community space and gathering and life-giving human interaction that is really resembling the community of the love of Christ and the body of Christ. I hope that that is just continually resurrected because that is what sets us apart is this loving, authentic community. I'm starting to see glimmers of that in our community here. We are a much smaller community than potentially New York, where you're at. I mean, those other larger cities, obviously there's differences, but the idea of community space being resurrected and that authentic Mm. community, I hope and I dream and I pray for. I love that you said that, you know, you're a a church person, a, a faith community person. I always like to say that like, my prime in the basement of a church with the fluorescent lighting at the chili cook-off. That is the, <laughs> that is the epitome of existence with everybody in the community there. Like that to me is like in those fluorescently lit basements, like that is where like good work is being done. I think even in a city context, one of the biggest things that I've learned since living in New York is how many people are lonely here. You can be so lonely amidst so many people. And I think this relates back to this idea of people being so worried about church decline. I think if we actually lived into being Easter people that said, come in whichever way you are, come and have that bowl of chili with us, you know, come and sit down next to us, please come and sit in my pew, all that kind of stuff. Like if we really lived into being that kind of community, that's where we're going to start to see some resurrection happening. And that's really where I think like this larger concept of the beloved community comes in, is when we're truly just being in one another's presence. I think it's so essential and profound. And I think we've lost so much of that. Once it's safe for everyone, we need to keep returning to it. Being okay that it changes. If somebody suggests that they want Instead of a chili cook-off, they want to have fry bread and woja pee for the whole congregation, and nobody's ever experienced that except for this one person. How can our traditions be resurrected and yet transformed? Hmm. Christ wasn't resurrected exactly as he died. Christ was resurrected and transformed, and we are continually called to be people of transformation How do we incorporate that as a part of our larger community and not just saying, well, we always do the chili cook-off. We always make chili (laughs) in the church. We always have soup during Lent. Well, how can you say when you have a new Ethiopian immigrant family that says, we would love to make a meal for you all, Mm -hmm. how we can be receptive to the communal changes and transformations while still holding true to our authenticity. In our isolation from COVID, we are so isolated that we don't see each other very much. And by see each other, I mean like, if I'm at home and I'm not outside interacting in the community, um, I'm not gonna pass by folks who might be homeless who are on the sidewalk. So then I don't become aware of them. And I think everybody thinks just like me or looks just like me or loves just like me or prays just like me. And I'm, I'm sort of not 
being able to see the rest of the world. And so I think part of that maybe has gotten rid of some of our empathy that we have for others. And so I'm hoping that the resurrection, it's gotten rid of some of our empathy, but also gotten rid of our sense of community and relationship we have to one another. And so I'm hoping that that would be resurrected, that sense of empathy, that sense of community, the sense of being able to see the sacred in each other and just being aware of folks who are different from us, right? If I have a house, there's got to be folks who don't have a house. If I'm, you know, a person of color, there's got to be folks who aren't. And if I'm white, there's got to be folks who, you know what I mean? Like we have to see all of that. And and sometimes we can be siloed in this, the way we've been living in the last two years. Yeah. Yeah. Who are you in the resurrection story? Where do you see yourself in this story? I would really love to see myself as the women who boldly proclaimed the message, who fully and authentically were there. But the reality is, I think my personal interaction is the person who hears the story, listens to it and internalizes it and becomes like Peter and goes and looks for themselves. I think in an ideal world, I would be the person who trusts the prophetic voices, but I Mm. think I have a long way to go to hit that ideal. So I'm much more like Peter who hears it and believes that there is truth in it, but still needs to see for myself. Yeah, I was going to say the exact same thing. I'm so likely to be skeptical. Um, I think the institutions that we operate in give us a lot of excuses to do that. I think we have a lot of, you know, reasons to be skeptical of good news, you know, something that could bring something new to us. Boy, do I wish I had (laughs) more faith. And I guess that's a part of the journey, right? I wish I had the faith of those women to say, we saw this. And the first reaction is, how amazing is that? I believe you entirely. And I want to be with you in that joy. I think I would see myself as one of the women who were taking the spices. Because I feel like anytime there's like mm. funeral stuff, at least at Lakota funerals, I'm always in the kitchen. Like I, like I need a job to do. I don't want to have to be organizing. I just want to be in the kitchen cooking something. And there's usually some older auntie yelling at me being like, make this macaroni salad or do this. Like I give me a job to do and I can do it. And so I feel like I would probably be one of these ladies carrying some basket of aloes or myrrh or something. And I was like, I'm just in the group, one of the group going in there. I probably wouldn't be the one to first see Jesus or see the people in dazzling clothes, but I'd be with them at least. So I, I feel like that's the right. Mm, I love that. What tips do you have on preaching Easter Vigil this year? One of my favorite quotes about preaching came from a priest that I actually think Mother Shaniqua is working with right now. But her quote is, a good sermon is about two things about Jesus in about six to eight minutes. And I find that (laughs) phrase really comical, but also especially true at services like the Easter Vigil. My biggest piece of advice for preaching things like the Vigil, Easter, Christmas, things like that, is make it about Jesus. Center Mm. it on the message. Center it on the beauty of the miracle. But most importantly, let the text speak for itself. Mm. I mean, this conversation proves how many ways there are to take and hear and internalize and live out the beautiful text that we are provided. So how are we allowing the text to do that as preachers? How are we not putting our own explanation, our own interpretation on the text, but how are we really just holding the text and cracking it open to be more visible. It's really hard, and it's something that I struggle with all the time. But I think allowing the space for so many beautiful pieces of text 
to speak for themselves would be my mm. biggest recommendation for preaching mm. this year. I love that. If there's one thing from like throughout my life in the church that like I will always remember is when I hear a sermon given by somebody who isn't in the pulpit. If somebody is standing in the middle of the church and speaking from their heart without notes, without paper, but giving a true story. And again, even if it's just a story that comes from your heart, that's what sticks with me. I love exegesis. I love when we dig deep. I totally am a scholar for that kind of stuff. But I really think the most impactful short little sermons are the ones that are given from the heart and are really given amongst the congregation. I think of one sermon a rector of mine in the past gave, you know, where he actually pulled up a chair and sat down in front of the congregation and treated it more as if it was a conversation. I'm a huge fan of Mr. Rogers. And so any opportunity to emulate making yourself more comfortable will relax the audience, will relax the congregation and will kind of make them feel more at home. So much of this service is about being like at home or in like a homey environment. I'm not saying you need to like change from your liturgy shoes to your sermon shoes like Mr. Rogers might do, but like, how can you change your language? Like, how can you like change the way that you're interacting with the congregation in that moment? Someone told me to keep it brief and bright. So kind of like what you said, Lydia, that was her way of framing that. She was like, brief and bright. And I was like, okay, I think I can do that. But now I've just been really hearing this exodus and I have to preach. I don't know if I have to preach that day, but I have to preach for some congregations the next day. So I might think about if I, if I can incorporate that story. It's been on my mind after both of you talked about it. So thank you so much for being willing to be on this podcast and share your wisdom, share your time and share your energy. It's been great to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Nick and Lydia. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If what you heard today resurrected something in you, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine. You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec lovealways.